A Bible reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 16, from verse 1 to 15, and it's on, the, on page 1049 of the Church Bible. The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? The master is taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to be, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so, so that when I lose my job here, people will come welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commanded his honest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest, with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with, with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and were snaring at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, for God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Well, very good morning to you. My name is Jonathan. I'm on the pastors here. Particularly warm welcome if you're new. Uh, lovely to have you. Uh, if you're new and visiting us, there is a church lunch afterwards. Uh, we'd love to, to see you along at that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a look at the parable. So it'd be really helpful if you could open your, your Bible to that uh, parable and uh, keep it open just to show uh, that I'm actually saying the right things from God's words. Let's, let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look at this parable of the Lord Jesus, would you speak to us? If we know it and it is familiar, would you help us to feel its punch once more? Father, please don't leave us merely as Bible listeners. Father, give us a desire to be quick and eager to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, the store Blockbuster was a big deal in, in the 2000s, the early 19, uh, late 1990s. Anyone who remember going to Blockbuster? Yeah, there you go, so, uh, depending on when you were born. Uh, so if you wanted to watch a movie, you'd go down to the Blockbuster store and you could rent, initially it was, it was cassettes, video cassettes, and, that, and then move on to DVDs. You could rent DVDs and you could choose whatever films that you wanted to watch. 
And at its peak, Blockbuster had 50 million uh, subscribers, 50 million members going to Blockbuster. In 2001, Blockbuster CEO John Asiocco took a meeting with a businessman called Reed Hastings. And Hastings had set up a fledgling company and had come to uh, Blockbuster with a business proposal. And so Reed Hastings offered to sell his company to Blockbuster for $50 million. I don't think that's very much in business terms. And then this company would then run Blockbuster's online business in exchange for in-store promotion. That was the deal. And John Atioko and the rest of the room just laughed them out of the room. Twelve years later, after that meeting, Blockbuster went out of business. And the name of Reed Hastings' company was... Netflix. Netflix. One of the leading business, entertainment businesses, Blockbuster, went out of business because it failed to allow the future to shape what it did in the present. Now, but just imagine, you know, the hindsight is really easy. Is it really easy to say, you know, give John Antioch a bit of a kicking? Because um, hindsight's just really easy to, to look back. But let's just imagine we gave John Asioko a time machine and he went back to that meeting in 2001 knowing what we know now, knowing the rise of Netflix. And Reed Hastings stands in his office and pitches the idea, I will sell you Netflix for $50 million. We'll run your streaming service and you give your in-store promotion uh, to us. And John Asioko looked at your promotion and says... Nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to buy Netflix. That would be a really dumb decision. If he knew the future, that would be an unbelievably dumb decision, wouldn't it? If he knew the future. And Jesus says Christians can sometimes make decisions that can be short-sighted and dumb, just like if John Atioka was brought back in a time machine and said, nah, go and buy Netflix. Christians can make short-sighted decisions like that, unwise decisions in the light of the future. And what we're going to do, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told, which encourages Christians to make, instead of dumb decisions about their future, smart decisions when it comes to thinking about their, their wealth but, and also their, their future. So first, use worldly wealth to invest in your heavenly future versus one tonight. And so I don't know whether you noticed, the first thing to actually flag up in verse 1 is who Jesus is speaking the parable to. He's speaking the parable, this, this short story with a punch, to his disciples. And so it's spoken to people who are already followers of the Lord Jesus. And so the parable cannot be saying, here's what you do to get into heaven. It can't be saying that. Rather, uh, it's saying, now that Jesus has qualified you for heaven by his death on the cross. This is how you should live. That's, that must be what the parable is saying. And so if you're looking into Christianity, then it's great you're here this morning. But it's very important, uh, that's a distinction that's very important to make. Human beings cannot buy their way or earn their way into heaven because we don't have the spiritual currency to pay off our spiritual debt. Instead, what we need to do is trust in the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross and it is only on the cross that Jesus pays our spiritual debts. And so, uh, if you're uh, here and you're looking to Christianity, one thing you need to uh, realise about the parable, it's not talking about earning your way to heaven, because no one can. Well, anyway, let's have a look uh, at the parable. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, 
This rich man is the equivalent of Richard Branson. He is so rich and his commercial empire is so massive and successful that he has to employ a manager to manage his business while he's off somewhere else. Unfortunately, he doesn't do his checks and this manager is a dishonest manager. He's just siphoning off funds into offshore accounts. He should be uh, trustworthy, but actually he's stealing from his boss. Uh, But his dishonesty is really short-lived because the rich man begins to get WhatsApp messages uh, saying from from his employees, look, your manager's got his hands in the till. You need to do something about this. We're losing money. The stock take is just not uh, um, uh, adding up. And so the manager is summoned by the rich man for a disciplinary meeting, verse 2. So the rich man called the manager in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the, the manager has nothing to say because he's guilty. He's just shamed into silence because of his guilt. And the man at Richmond fires him like Alan Sugar firing a really incompetent would-be apprentice. And the dishonest manager is given a few weeks to get the business affairs in order. And that's a bit different from us today. Uh, if you get fired, uh, if you get... Um, you might get plowed gardening leave, but actually, uh, back then, you know, he's, he's got a few weeks to get the business affairs in order before he leaves the company in disgrace. And what is really interesting is what's utmost on his mind. What is utmost on his mind is his future. Do you see that? Very soon his salary will stop and he'll become unemployed. Now, back in Jesus' day, there was no job seekers allowance, there was no job centre. If someone didn't work, they didn't eat. And so the future looks really bleak for this manager, this dishonest manager, that you know, he's not going to get a great reference from his boss. He's not going to find getting a, another job very easy. Uh, and so verse 3 just gives a sense of what's going on in his head. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My manager is taking away, uh, so, uh, my master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. So this manager has always been a white-collar worker. Uh, his work days have been sat in a chair behind a desk. And as a result, he's not very strong. And so he concludes that he's too unfit to become a construction worker and dig in the hot Mediterranean sun. That was a hard job, and he rules it out. So he just can't do it. And the only other option, if he's not going to go into that line of work, is to beg for money. And although he's unfit, and although he's dishonest, he still has some pride and he says, well, I'm going, to be too, I'm going to be too ashamed to beg. I'm not going to beg. That's not going to be me. And then, the, the, the dishonest manager has a light bulb moment, verse 4. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me uh, into their houses. And so this manager may be dishonest, but he's shrewd, he's smart, he's clever. He knows what the future holds, and he knows... Um, that it's not good if he doesn't act. And so this knowledge shapes what he does in the presence. And so uh, this dishonest manager does the opposite of what John Asioko, blockbuster CEO, did. He thinks about the future and is shaped what's coming up in the future and he acts in the light of it. And he's going to do something in the here and now so that when he does lose his job, He's more likely to be welcomed by other business people that he knows and probably more likely to get another job. And that even though he's been fired, he's working out his notice, he still has access to the accounts and he still has access to the company's contacts. 
And so he calls in one of the businessmen who owns the rich man, and he says to them, how much do you owe my master? And he says, well, I owe about 800 gallons of oil. 800 gallons of olive oil. Well, that's worth about £30,000 if I was living in 21st century Birmingham. Here's an idea. Why don't we just rip up that original agreement and make a new one? Let's renegotiate the terms so that instead of 800 gallons, you owe 400 gallons. You're halving my bill and knocking £15,000 off it. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm doing that. I can do that. Well, that's, that's amazing. Where can I sign? Well, you can sign right here. Well, listen, I owe you big time. I won't forget this. You know, see you around. Yeah, sure, see you around. Oh, by the way, here's my CV. And he does a similar thing with someone else. He owes, another man owes the rich man a thousand bushels of wheat, about 75,000. And he knocks off 15,000 off that bill, roughly, in today's terms. And the manager is smart, he's clever. When he eventually loses his job, he's going to be welcomed in with open arms by these people who have discounts on their debts between 20% and 50%. If someone uh, get, get knocked off uh, £15,000 of a thing you, you're buying, maybe a house, I think you'd be fairly well, uh, well received uh, or well um, intentioned towards that person, wouldn't you? So we get to the uh, verse 8, and if I'm honest, it's probably a tricky verse to go ahead around. Because uh, in verse 8, not, it's not hard to um, understand in one sense, but it's hard to make, make out what's going on. So in verse 8, the rich man hears that the dishonest, what the dishonest manager has done. And um, you'd think he'd explode in anger, wouldn't you? This man, manager has just cost him £30,000. But he doesn't. Look at what verse 8 says. This is a shocking verse 8. The manager's master commended, well, yeah, the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. I wonder what you would have done to someone who's cost you £30,000. I don't think I would have said, oh, yeah, well done, good, good work, yeah, you, you've done a brilliant move there. But that's what this rich man, uh, man does. He praises the shrewdness of this manager. And the question is, what is going on there? Uh, well, some people say that the most straightforward way of understanding it, uh, they say, is that the manager was dishonest in verse 1, and again he's being dishonest in verse 5 to 7, and he cheats the rich man out of the equivalent of £35,000. And according to this view, the rich man is praising the manager's shrewdness, his smartness, but not his dishonest actions. That's what one view, that's probably, um, most, most of the commentators I've read seem to go for that one. I've got a couple of problems with that view. I think first, it's hard to separate someone's uh, uh, character from their actions. If you've got dishonest actions, then you've got a dishonest character as well. Anyway, uh, but second, in telling this parable, in some way, Jesus is holding up this manager as something someone to copy. And that's a problem if his actions are dishonest. You know, Jesus cannot be commending dishonest, sinful actions, even if they are shrewd or smart. In all of the parables Jesus tells, as far as I understand, he never commends anyone who acts sinfully, and it would be strange if he started to break the pattern here. So let me give you my take on what's going on, uh, and you can see what you think so, about why the rich man commends this manager. So it could be wrong, but it appears that what this manager is doing is he sacrificing his commission on the sale of the olive oil and of the wheat. So the rich man doesn't lose any money, 
Uh, it's the manager who loses his commission on those sales. And in that, according to this view, the manager's been dishonest back in verse 1, but in verses 5 to 7, he's not being dishonest. He's just being shrewd. And that allows the rich man to commend him and Jesus to hold him up as a, as, as a model. And so the rich man hears what this manager has done, and he praises him for his smartness, his shrewdness. He sees, a, <clears throat> he sees a future of unemployment, and he sacrifices his own commission money in order to improve his chances of to getting another job. And I think the point of the parable may well surprise us, because Jesus says Christians have something to learn from those who aren't Christians. That's what he's saying in the parable. He's saying Christians need to look at those who aren't Christians and learn a positive lesson from them. And what's, this par- what's the parable lesson? Well, it can be found in the second half of verse 8. For the people of this world, i.e. those who aren't Christians, are more shrewd or clever or smart in dealing with their own kind than those than are the people of the light, i.e. Christians. And here's Jesus' point. People who aren't Christians often can make smarter choices about their earthly future than Christians make about their heavenly future. Let me say that again. People who aren't Christians often make smarter choices about their earthly future than Christians make about their heavenly future. That's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Uh, I wonder whether you're here looking into Christianity. Maybe you're thinking, uh, normally I come to church and I said, well, uh, trust in Jesus, do what Christians do. But actually Jesus said, in this case, in this small area, Christians need to learn a little bit from, from, from people who aren't Christians. So Jesus tells Christians how they can make shrewder decisions, how they can uh, become a bit smarter as they think about their heavenly future, verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And so as Christians uh, look forward to an eternal heavenly home, that's the new earth and the new heaven. And we'll go to that eternal home either when we die or when Jesus comes back again. And when that happens, we will lose all our worldly wealth. All of it. Gone. It'll, it'll, we'll lose it all. In the same way as the, as the, as the, the manager realises he's going to lose his job, we need to realise we're going to lose all our worldly possessions. And the question is, are we going to be like the shrewd manager and act in a clever way, knowing that? But what does verse you know, 9 actually mean to use worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves? So they'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means investing our worldly wealth now with our eternal future in mind. So as we invest our worldly wealth in the spread and the growth of the gospel, we'll gain friends for ourselves who will put their trust in Jesus and will meet one day in heaven so that when we die, our Heavenly Father will welcome us into heaven, into the eternal dwellings. And our use of worldly wealth will show that our hearts has been truly changed by our, by our Heavenly Father. It is also possible that those who became Christians, because of our generosity, will uh, be part of the welcome party in our uh, eternal home. So just imagine uh, you died tonight, and you wake, if you're trusting in Jesus, you wake up in heaven because you're trusting in his death on the cross. 
And your Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, welcomes you into heaven with great smiles. But then the next thing you know, you're being hugged by a Pakistani lady you just don't know. And it's a bit confusing because you think, I've, I've never known you, I've never been to Pakistan. I'm not quite sure why you're hugging me. Uh, I'm English, take it off, and uh, you know, take my hand instead. And so you ask her why, you're, why she's so happy, and she goes, well, you don't know it. But the money you gave to City Church went to support your mission partner, Rachel Smith in my home city of Pakistan, and she told me about Jesus. And I believe the gospel, and I'm here because you used your worldly wealth with the future in mind. And that's an awesome thought, isn't it? Uh, We can choose to invest our money so that someone who does not know Jesus can come to know him and live in a perfect world forever. And so the dishonest manager realised He's going to lose his job. And so he acted in the presence to invest in his earthly future. And as Christians, we need to look at people who aren't Christians and to learn from them in that regard. We need to realise that in the end, we're going to lose all our worldly wealth. Our homes, our houses, our money, our cars. are just like the houses, the money and cars in a game of Monopoly. And just like a game of Monopoly... Uh, When the game ends, everything goes back in the box. When the game ends, everything goes back in the box. The the houses, the cars, the money. And knowing that should move us to act in the presence. To invest in our heavenly future. Just just imagine I gave you some uh, sticky dots of two colours. The two colours, one's red, one's green. And I asked you to put a red dot on every thing or person in your life that will not be in heaven and a green dot on anything that would be in heaven what would have the red dots on them our house red dots our car red dots our smartphone red dots our furniture red dots our clothes red dots our bank balance red dots our television red dots and there will be red dots all over our possessions and our, our books, uh, everything. And it would be a stark reminder that the physical things we treasure most are simply a long-term loan by God. One day they'll all go back in the box. And, and uh, where would all those green dots be? Well, they'll be placed on the foreheads of those people who trust in Jesus. That's where the green dots will be. Those are the things that will be going through to the, you know, into the new heavens and new earth. All those people who trust in the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus' challenge to us as Christians here this morning is, is this. Are we going to be shrewd? Are we going to be smart and clever in our use of all those items of worldly wealth that have red, red dots on them? We cannot keep them. But we can use them to invest in our eternal future. I mean, what does that look like in practice to use our worldly wealth to invest our heavenly future? Well, it could mean uh, beginning to give a proportion of your income to, to church or to a Christian organisation to further the work of the gospel. If you're giving uh, already, then it could be making sure that your giving to the gospel work either grows or shrinks in proportion uh, with your income. Because if you had a pay rise recently, would someone be able to notice that you had a pay rise? if they had access to what you gave in the last year. I think one of the really great benefits of doing mission and ministry gift dates each year, once a year, is that it's a reminder just to think back on how God has been good to us. 
So back in September, um, you as a church uh, gave the staff a pay rise. I don't think I've adjusted my giving uh, in the life of that pay rise. So that's a challenge for me. And for those of us who've been around the city for a while, seven, uh, eight years, and, and mission and ministry gift days is one of the things that we know is coming. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a case of, oh, here we go again, but actually it's a, a reminder of how God has been good to us and how we can respond in the light of that goodness. Uh, it could mean opening your home regularly so that a home group can meet there, read God's word and pray together. It could mean giving away possessions to others who are in need. And I know so many people who do that. And being a, a, one of the pastors here, I probably know a little bit more uh, about what's going on. And it's amazing to see people sharing things for those in need. Use worldly wealth to invest in your heavenly future. Uh, second, realise that God won't give true wealth to the people who can't be trusted. Verses 10 to 12. And so Jesus just encouraged us to invest our temporary uh, wealth into our permanent heavenly future. And he gives another reason why to make that future investment. Have a look down at verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with, with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dis- dishonest with much. And the principle is very straightforward. People will reveal their trustworthiness with how they handle the small things. People will reveal their trustworthiness with how they handle the small things. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't have a huge amount of money. And that's, that's not the issue in one sense. Because Jesus says, how you handle the small things will reveal whether you're trustworthy or not. Whether I can trust you, this is Jesus, with the big things, with true wealth. So one of the great things uh, uh, I got challenged about when I was a student was to start giving. And maybe as as a student you feel like you're probably the least well of people in this church, and you might be right. Um, But uh, how you handle the small things that that Jesus has given you uh, is an indication of how you handle the bigger things. And so the Lord Jesus has given you that very little you have at the moment, whether that's a student loan or what you've built up over the summer. And he's watching what you do with it to see if you can be trusted with true wealth. And so Jesus takes this principle from uh, verse 10 and applies it to worldly wealth in verse 11 and 12. So, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust, trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? The house in Harborn is not true riches. The BMW is not true riches. The healthy bank balance is not true riches. It's a shock because we think they are. That's what we aim for, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah I'm trying to buy a house. I'd love to be able to buy in Harborn. Can't do it. But yeah, that's what, if I had the money, I'd do it. That's what we aim for. Why aren't these true riches? Well, because they don't belong to you ultimately. They belong to God. And you cannot keep them. Uh, But God gives this worldly wealth to see whether he can trust us with true riches. And so in one sense, our life is a game of monopoly and God is watching how we play it. And those true riches on offer to Christians are those spiritual blessings in the new heavens and the new earth. And the New Testament seems to suggest there are different uh, 
rewards or uh, ways in which we serve in the new heavens and new earth, depending on how we live today. So let me ask you, are you being trustworthy with the little worldly wealth God has entrusted to you? That worldly wealth that you cannot keep. Being trustworthy doesn't mean that Christians can't buy houses. It doesn't mean that they can't buy a car or go and enjoy nice holidays. Uh, But it does mean Christians will prioritise giving away worldly wealth for the cause of the gospel. It does mean that. And as they give away that worldly wealth, they'll know that it's not a sacrifice in one sense. In one sense it is, because you're saying no at the moment. But it's not a sacrifice, but it's an investment. Because ultimately one day, uh, God will recognise that. And if we've been faithful with things that are not true wealth, he will give us things which are true wealth. You know, God is no man's debtor. Uh, MMDD is once in each year where we as Christians have the opportunity to gain rather than lose. I wonder whether you come uh, and you've known this has been coming in GD and you think to yourself, oh, not again. It's just an opportunity for, for me to lose more uh, wealth or more money. But actually, it's an opportunity to gain rather than lose because Jesus is not looking for money per se. He's looking for a heart that's changed and wants to invest in, in, a, in a heavenly future. Perhaps we need to take to heart the words of the martyr Christian missionary Jim Elliot, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he, he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So realise that God won't give true wealth to people who cannot be trusted. So as we close, we are in the same position as John Asioke, the CEO of Blockbuster. Before us is the Lord Jesus, and he encourages us to invest our worldly wealth for the future. We can either make a really dumb decision, or we can make a really smart and shrewd decision. And the dumb decision would be to hold on to our worldly wealth with clenched fists like John Asioke and held on to his movie rental business. And, but just like John Asioko, if you'll find that one day all your worldly wealth is gone and it's slipped through your grasp. But the smart or shrewd decision would be to use your worldly wealth in a way in which you invest in your heavenly future. And so Jesus has spoken to us. It's a hard-hitting parable. It hits us where it hurts us most, in the wallet. What are we going to do? How are we as a church going to respond what the Lord Jesus said to us this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please, um, would you capture our hearts with the words of the Lord Jesus to to use worldly wealth to gain friends uh, so that we want to give, that, that it would be hard to stop us giving. Father, would you keep us from uh, thinking that Sunday like this is an opportunity to lose when actually it's an opportunity eternally to gain. Father, change our thinking so we realise that you love us and that one day in the new heavens and new earth you will reward us with true wealth. But Father, would you use that uh, future perspective to change what we're doing in the present? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.